Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, Reasons to Believe, with a message titled, Jesus on Trial. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Ken Hughes tells the story of pole vaulter Brian Sternberg, who in the early 1960s was breaking all sorts of pole vaulting records. He was a star destined for greatness. But in 1963, while on a trampoline, Brian Sternberg fell and broke his neck. And after that, he was hardly able to move a muscle. And 40 years after the accident, if you had seen him then, you'd have noticed that his head was of a normal size but the rest of his body had shrunk due to muscle atrophy. He looked disfigured. He could make some motions with his arms, but every small movement came with great difficulty. He finally died in 2013. Here's what his mom once said of him. She said, No one in Brian's condition has ever walked, no one. Yet we still believe. I have no idea when God will heal Brian. It's conceivable this particular battle will not be won here on earth. Some people you pray for are healed and some aren't in this world, but that doesn't change God's desire for wholeness, body, mind, and spirit. We won't give up. We're like doctors searching for a cure. We won't stop investigating. We think it pleases God for us to persevere. You know people like that? Many of you have heard of Johnny Erickson Tada. Others of you have friends or family members. Well, let's imagine that the outcome of Brian's life had been different. Imagine that Brian had just finished his devotions one morning. He's sitting by an open window, and he'd noticed some tingling in his toes and fingers, and then it spread like heat through his arms and legs, and then he tears back the covers and reveals that his legs are fully restored, and then he hears the voice of Jesus saying, rise and be healed, and he literally leaps out of the wheelchair and runs outside into the sunlit grass, shouting praises to his Redeemer. I mean, imagine that. But now imagine that scene 2,000 years ago when that's exactly what happened to a paralytic. A man paralyzed for 38 years heard the voice of Jesus say, pick up your mat and walk, and he did. And the first thing a group of religious leaders said was, that's illegal. That violates the laws of our country, our Sabbath laws. And the man who was healed agreed and identified Jesus as a lawbreaker. You see, what happens to a human soul when it becomes incapable of rejoicing in the work of God? How does it happen that some people who have given their lives to the work of religious service are not now breathtakingly waiting for God to be revealed? What happens when a healed man turns his back on his healer? What happens to a heart that's no longer filled with wonder and is no longer open to God? See, I'll tell you what happens. The soul begins to oppose God. That soul hates God. That soul fights against God. Today, I've entitled our study, Jesus on Trial. This study is about why Jesus is still being persecuted in the world, even though he heals the sick and raises the dead and opens blind eyes and liberates the human soul. Why is it that in spite of the fact that millions of people have found life in Christ, is he still opposed? The fact is that many consider Jesus an unwelcome intrusion into this world. They don't want him, and the world must be done with him forever. When we read our passage today, I want you to notice the word persecuted. It'll be found in verse 16. That's actually a legal word. We could also translate that word as prosecuted. 
In other words, after Jesus had healed the paralyzed man in John chapter 5, the Jewish religious leaders began to gather together a, a battery of evidence that would eventually lead to the trial of Jesus and his subsequent execution. So what we find in John 5 tells us why the world turned against the only man who could ever save them from their sins and nailed him to a cross. Our world would do the same today. So I'm reading John chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. That is why the Jews were seeking to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, our passage begins by explaining to us first that Jesus was being persecuted, and then it tells us why. He was healing people on the Sabbath. So for our purposes, let's begin at the beginning, the fact that Jesus was being persecuted. Let's define persecution. For instance, the organization Open Doors says that every month, 255 Christians are killed in this world on account of their faith. Another 104 Christians are abducted. 180 Christian women are either raped or forced into an unwanted marriage outside of their faith. 66 churches are attacked in some fashion. And every month, 160 Christians are detained without trial. Now, that's what many of us think about when we think about persecution. But in truth, there are a range of experiences that rightly belong under the heading of persecution. It might be as mild as hostile attitudes towards people on the basis of their faith. From there, it moves to hostile verbal harassment. Then it might move to hostile restrictions. That is, to be a Christian might mean that one is being excluded in some way, simply because of their faith. So, for instance, I remember when Romania was a communist country, Christians were prevented from obtaining a higher education because they were Christians. That's called exclusion, and it is persecution. But Christians might also be thrown out of families because of their conversion, and that too is persecution. In the ancient Roman world, Christians were often excluded from trade guilds simply because they refused to pour out libations to the Roman and Greek gods, which was considered a vital part of being in a trade guild. Of course, when persecution goes from being warm to being hot, then physical violence enters into the equation. That's when imprisonment and rape and beatings and, and death are a part of the picture. In the case of Jesus, the kind of persecution he endured at the beginning started at a more mild level and, of course, as we know, finally escalated to his own crucifixion. And so we have every right to ask at the very outset, if John tells us that Jesus was being persecuted by the Pharisees, what exactly was he referring to? Please remember that according to verse 18, the Jews, that means the, the Jewish religious leaders, were looking for an opportunity to kill him. It goes like this. They hated Jesus and would have killed him, but were not able to pull it off because their laws prevented it. And so the religious leaders were doing everything they could do to so arrange things so that they could legally put him to death. And so they were looking for a legal reason to take him to trial. And when Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda and told him to take up his mat and go home on the Sabbath, that was seen as an occasion to ratchet up the pressure. That's what John means when he says that Jesus was being persecuted. 
But let's move to the next verse, which is verse 17. The verse begins with the words, but Jesus answered them. Now, clearly, John was not recording what the Jewish leaders might have said to Jesus, but something rather damning was said as an attempt to entrap him and put him to death. No doubt the religious leaders charged him with willfully violating the laws of Sabbath. You know, after something was said about the blatant disregard for Sabbath laws, Jesus answered, and his answer, rather than lowering the pressure, only heightens the pressure. He says, my father is working until now, and so am I. Now, to the modern reader of this text, we might wonder how in the world this could be so inflammatory. But it's so important to understand this that I've decided to slow down my study of John and to explain this one matter. You see, there was in Jesus' day a very lively debate about whether or not God himself was a Sabbath breaker. And if he was, that was a clearly theological problem because, according to the Bible, the law or the Ten Commandments were the standard of righteousness. And as most of you know, the, the fourth command is to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. But almost every rabbi in Jesus' day believed that, that God worked on the Sabbath. For instance, God keeps running the universe even on the Sabbath. And furthermore, God's providence was always at work, even on the Sabbath. That is, God was arranging all things for his glory and our long-term good on the Sabbath. God didn't stop blessing people on the Sabbath. He never stopped caring for the needs of his children on the Sabbath. Well, now, if God is working on the Sabbath, and by the way, all the, all the rabbis agreed on that point, and if God works on the Sabbath, how is it possible then that working on the Sabbath is a problem for us? Well, it turns out that the rabbis did have an answer for that. And what Jesus said about the Sabbath on that day and his role in it so infuriated the Pharisees that they determined that no matter what, he must die. And for us, we should note that what Jesus said is quite frankly, the most important debate in the history of the human race. So grateful to hear feedback from listeners as we celebrate 60 years of ministry. Friends of the ministry wrote recently to share how encouraged they've been over the years listening to the Bible teaching of Theodore Epp, how he was a great man of faith, vision, and faithfulness to the Word of God. And now they continue to listen every day with gratitude as Dr. Neufeld remains faithful to this same legacy. The Word of God does not change, and we continue to celebrate its truth and the good news shared for all mankind. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to continue a 60-year legacy of Bible teaching made possible through the prayers and gifts of friends like you right across Canada for six decades. Please continue with your gracious support as the truth of God's Word is broadcast across our nation. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca today. Every single rabbi agreed that God works on the Sabbath. But the most prominent rabbis made the point that he did this without violating his own principles on Sabbath. And, and here's how. You know, first of all, the rabbis argue that the universe is God's house, even as our own individual dwelling is our house. 
Now, if that's so, and by the way, it, it must be so because the entire universe is his, well then, if God works on the Sabbath, it's only within the confines of his own house. See, the rabbis agreed that you are working if you are carrying something outside of your house, but not in your house. Therefore, even while God carries the weight of the universe every day, he's still doing it inside of his own house. And that's why they said God can't be charged with Sabbath breaking. Well, now, whatever you make of that kind of reasoning, that's really not the point. The point is that was the theology of the day. Now, now that you know that, go back to what Jesus says. Remember, Jesus has just told the man he is healed to pick up his mat and go home on the Sabbath. And because the man had followed Jesus' direct orders, the the Pharisees concluded that the real Sabbath breaker is the man who ordered the healed man to work. In other words, Jesus broke the Sabbath. Remember, they're all looking to kill Jesus. He's a Sabbath breaker, so according to the law, you could be stoned to death. And in response, Jesus says something that could more easily get you stoned to death than being a Sabbath breaker. He says, my father is always working. And when he says that, he's reflecting the theology that every rabbi believed. And when he says, that's why I'm working. See, another way of putting that would be to say, God works because the universe is his house. And I work because this universe is my house as well. How? Now you can understand why that one sentence was like throwing a match into a room filled with jet fuel. I mean, at this moment, everything exploded, and what follows is a knockdown, drag him out, full blown, furious, anger filled exchange. I mean, look at it this way. There are other occasions recorded in the Gospels in which Jesus and the Pharisees argued about the Sabbath. But on many of those occasions, they were arguing about what was lawful on the Sabbath. Well, all those debates constantly raged, but here in John 5, the debate is taken to a level, well, let's just say the debate went nuclear. Jesus was saying he could carry any man he wanted anywhere on the Sabbath because the universe was his home, just like his father. Now, zero in on verse 18. The reason the religious teachers were looking to kill Jesus had a lot more to do with whether or not he was breaking the Sabbath. In fact, he was making himself equal with God. And by the way, they were right. That's exactly what he was doing. Now, we must not pass that matter over quickly. You know, Don Carson says, a man making himself equal with God was challenging the fundamental distinction between the holy, infinite God and finite, fallen human beings. Exactly so. I mean, consider, for instance, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Now, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is that nothing is like God. There's an infinite distance between the Creator and his creation. Or consider Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. See, all of that fits very well with what the Jews called the Shema. The Hebrew word Shema means hear. When the Jews speak the Shema, they're talking about Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, a verse that every Israelite was called on to repeat often. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
That is to say, not two, not three, one. There is none other. This is but one God. Don't you dare compare anything to him. Understand that he's in a category by himself. He is holy, you're not. He's God, you're a creature. There is an infinite distance between the creature and his creation. But let's take this line one step further. Don Carson also says that various first-century pagan religions were quite happy to obliterate distinctions between God and humans. And we know that's right. I mean, the ancient Caesars called themselves God. And the Jews called that blasphemy. It's the worst kind of evil that could exist. Consider Ezekiel 29, verse 3. You know, in that verse, God is speaking to Pharaoh. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the streams that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. See, don't you see? Claiming that something that belongs to the only God is yours? Well, that's about as wicked as it can be. It's the blackest form of evil that can exist. And so it must be, from the Bible itself, that Jesus is not another God or a competing God. If he had claimed that, his claim would indeed have been an evil of the vilest kind. I say this because we must make it plain that Christianity does not hold that there are three gods. And also, to be plain, Jesus did not claim that he was another god. Jesus himself said that there was but one god. But it is also true that Jesus did call God his father, and in so doing, he did make himself equal with God. He said that when he worked on the Sabbath, he was acting exactly like his father. So, when Jesus said, the reason that I'm at work on the Sabbath is because that's what Dad and I always do. I mean, there must have been a stunned silence. Every jaw just dropped. And when they caught their breath, they were outraged. You, how dare you? You're making yourself equal with God. And they were right. That's precisely what he was doing. And that's why they couldn't rejoice in this healing. To do so would be to admit that this man was equal with God. And that was an outrage. And I must confess, it's no less an outrage today. Just before we go on, let's make this crystal clear. The reason Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross was because he claimed equality with a father. This is either blasphemous or it's true. But many have concluded that, that this kind of stuff made it impossible to get excited about a healing. I mean, Jesus was, you see, forcing the issue. He demanded that we see him as the only begotten son of the living God, or as God the Son come to us in human flesh. And C.S. Lewis put it very well in this very well-known quote. He said, in the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I only regard as silliness and conceit unrivaled by any character in history. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He did not leave that open to us. He did not intend to. You know, we live in a world quite unlike the world of first century Judaism. Ours is a culture that emphasizes not faithfulness to the Bible, but the values of pluralism and tolerance. 
And so in our culture, if someone says they're a God, well, I mean, we might tolerate them or laugh at them or ignore them or agree with them, but no one goes to trial or imprisonment or receives a death penalty because of that. But our culture exerts enormous pressure on Christians to change the way that we believe and present our faith. We will hear it's fine to say that Jesus is one way to God, but we must not make him the only way to God. Tell people that Jesus is one version of the truth and they won't become angry with you, but tell them that he is the only truth and it triggers anger. Don't you see, we have our own trigger points as well. It's all fine and well for Jesus to heal, but when he starts claiming that he is the one and only God, one with the Father at that very moment, our society becomes just as intolerant as the Pharisees were 2,000 years ago. But that's exactly why Jesus was being persecuted. In Jesus, the only God stepped into this world, and men loved darkness rather than light. And that's why Jesus continues to be as unwelcome in our world as he was in theirs. And that's why the claims of Jesus to be the only and one true God is the most important and vital claim the earth has ever heard. C.S. Lewis was right. We can call Jesus a fool or we can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but there are no other options left to us. John, one of the things I think a, a lot of people outside of the Christian faith struggle with is, is the exclusive claims of Christ. Yeah, exclusivism, you know, that just strikes so many people as, as harsh, bitter language. And so it, we're just programmed in our culture just to automatically reject anyone claiming something exclusive. So I am right. I'm the only way. No one comes to the Father but through me. I mean, that just... What about well-meaning people who have another way and don't agree with you? I mean, see, this is always, for our culture, something that's just unacceptable. Now, is it unacceptable? I would say no. We've been programmed this way in our culture. So we always find ourselves up against this harsh reality. But the point I've been trying to make is that's no different than it was in Jesus' day. When Jesus said that, you know, I am one with a father, well, claiming to be one with a father was just unacceptable. So they're after him. And so we just need to press through believing the Holy Spirit will convict people. Thanks, John. Remember to join us here again tomorrow for more of the Reasons to Believe series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hey, this is Isaac from In Doubt. Most of you can remember young adulthood, new jobs, relationships, adventures, but can you also remember the questions and longings you faced? Issues related to identity and faith? Some thoughts going on in today's young adults are, even though my biology says I'm a girl, I feel like a boy. And smoking marijuana is the same as drinking alcohol, right? Countless other issues consume their minds, and it's imperative that they hear and apply gospel-rich truths that satisfy their deepest questions. InDoubt is focused on providing those truths with unique and relevant resources. In addition to financially supporting solid Bible teaching, or if you've never given before, would you prayerfully consider investing in today's often confused young adults by supporting InDoubt? You make this ministry possible. 
Call today at 1-800-663-2425 or click donate at indo.ca.